0: Birthday yesterday. Brian, why don't you stand up? Embarrass you. Turned 27 yesterday with three kids and a lovely wife. Let's go ahead and sing him Happy Birthday. Happy Birthday to you. (laughs) To you. Happy birthday, dear Brian. Happy birthday to you. Isn't that the worst? <laughs> oh, I can't stand that. I'm glad it's you and not me. Thank you, Steve. You hear me okay? Okay. So uh, last, well, I say several weeks ago, I think it was May 14th, there was a Mother's Day uh, sermon, and to be candid, uh, I heard from several people, and I agreed, I really struggled through that whole message. I tried to do two sermons, a Mother's Day sermon, and I tried to stay with the Sermon on the Mount, and it just didn't go over well, and I left there just feeling completely unfulfilled, like I had just not done my job as the preacher um, because I, I really, I don't have the foggiest idea what it means to be a mom. I don't understand, I mean I can read books and I can talk to my wife and I can talk to my mother and, and just ask them about how they feel about the stresses and the worries of, of what it means to be a mom. Uh, the empathy, the love, the care, the nurture, all those things that you women deal with. But I do know what it's like to be a father Um, I've been a father for almost 18 years, uh, over 18 years if you count utero, like the uh, Middle East does, and the Eastern religions do. Um, I know what it feels like to be the provider uh, of my family. I know what it feels like to be the protector of them. Uh, I know what it's like to be the encourager of my sons and my daughters, and I also know what it's like to be the enforcer when necessary. Uh, There's been times when I've had to be the massive enforcer of something, and I get it. I know how it feels. And this morning, uh, even though I failed miserably a month and four days ago, or whatever it was, I'm going to try to do two messages again today. I've got Sermon 1 and Sermon 2, and the first sermon is mainly geared towards the men in the congregation. Uh, It may not be comfortable. It may be convicting. I hope so. It may be challenging. I hope so. Um, It's challenging for me every time I study out something like this, but as I look in our culture today... um, there's something that we as men need to recognize, especially fathers and fathers-to-be, is that our sons and our daughters will define their relationship with God uh, a lot on our relationship with God. Um, This is taking nothing away from mothers, not even a little bit, but this is definitely pointing to the fathers and saying that our sons will look at, at, my sons will look at me And they will say, that's what a man is. And they will define their manhood as they get older by how I treat people, by how I serve God or not serve God, by my passion towards uh, being faithful. Um, And my daughters will, will look at me and say, that's the kind of man that I want to marry. That's the kind of, that's, that's the definition of a man. Now, it's, I'm not talking it's across the board all the time, but that's primarily, I believe, what's going to happen. Is that my daughter's going to look at me and, and she's going to see someone that's like a, a godly man or an ungodly man and probably gear herself toward uh, the same uh, when she's older. And one of, one of the most damaging and destructive ideologies in our culture today, and believe me, this has have a point, as we go through this. One of the most damaging and destructive ideologies we have in our culture today, in our world today, specifically in America, is that boys should act more like the fairer sex of girls. Boys should become more like girls. We should kind of, this this gender blender concept in society is starting to really infiltrate schools and and playgrounds and TV shows. and, And if you look at it, the last 50 years, and you see in our culture that the concept of true manhood has slowly deteriorated over time. And I've got some of the older folks that have been around longer than me, or the younger ones, for shaking their head yes, it has slowly deteriorated over time. And I can remember back in the 80s, there was a show called In Living Color, and there was Saturday Night Live. And back then, in the 80s, they would really kind of make their comedy skit on making fun of males that acted like females. That was the skit, that was the comedy, and it was one of the most popular shows amongst teens uh, and young adults. And I can remember shows that are still on uh, 11-2 if you don't have cable, me TV, like Archie Bunker and MASH. And those shows would make poke fun at males that acted like females. Archie Bunker would always say some pretty off-color things within his commentary and then in M.A.S.H., you know, you had the, the one that walked around like he was a female or that he was uh, not a real man so he could get out of uh, Vietnam. But the goal was to delegitimize men in, in, by acting like women. And one of my favorite comic strips ever, no, not one of, my favorite comic strip is uh, Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson. And in 1987, Bill Watterson had a comic, and it was uh, Hobbes and Calvin sitting at the base of a tree, and Hobbes is always this really deep philosophical, uh, teddy or uh, lion um, or tiger. Sorry, it's tiger. That is that a lion? He's a tiger, tiger. And uh, I always get too confused. So he's sitting there with Hobbes on this tree, and he says, "I read that girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice," and Calvin says. Uh, no, and then and then, uh, Hobbes says, whereas boys are made of uh, snips and snails and puppy dog tails. And Calvin goes, hmm. So what are tigers made of, he asks Hobbes. And Hobbes says, dragonflies and catty kids, but mostly chewed up little kids. Oh, that's clever, Calvin says. But this comic back in the 80s was that there's a very much a difference between girls and boys. And it's being taught now, even in our culture today, that testosterone levels are decreasing in men, in males. They're they're slowly decreasing. They've done these tests, and I just went, read one on Harvard, uh, from Harvard, that that testosterone is decreasing, and they they attribute this decreasing of testosterone in boys to um, overweight, lack of physical activity, poor diet, lack of good sleep. So there's a, there's there's reasons why men, or boys, are losing testosterone, which is part of our drive, and I think it's why the world has been conquered in a lot of areas, because of testosterone that's in men. This might sound extremely uh, patriarchal, this message, this beginning, this first sermon, um, but the way I feel is this is a sword that I'm willing to fall on, because I do believe this is a major, major, major problem in our culture, and... When I look at the physical and I'm around kids today and I'm around a lot of young boys today and, and uh, teenage boys through baseball and, and mainly through baseball and, and I, see, I see young boys that are, that are acting more and more like their sisters and it, it frightens me. It frightens me for them because I, I want to see, see them come with you know, dirt on their face and blood on their hands and they, they, they look like they just got in a rough and tumble fight. They just got dirty. And that's, I think that's what we see, we actually see that in Scripture. I mean, the, 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 men, the men we admire, that every man admires, is David. When he walks up and he sees Goliath on this hill, and he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of God? And every man that's ever read that story said, I wish I had the courage of David. And every woman that read that story Says, I want a man like David that will not allow someone to defy God. And so what is physical in the Old Testament, what's physical in our lives, can be attributed to what's spiritual as well in our lives. And years ago, when I first became a Christian, I read this, I read this Bible verse in, in 1 Corinthians, we'll read it in a minute, and I read that passage and it convicted the socks off me. It made me say to myself, I want to, be, I want to be a man's man. I want to be a godly man's man. The kind of man that, that my kids, 20, 30 years from now, when I'm dead, or 40 years from when I'm dead, and they say, you know, Dad was, he was a man of conviction. He would never bow in the face of truth. That's what I want my kids, my daughter, my sons to say. I want them to talk to my grandkids and my great-grandkids. And so I read this scripture, and I thought, I'm going to be this guy. I'm going to challenge myself to be this guy. So Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and he, he's, we're going to look at one of the passages in, earlier on in chapter 16 about the, the other part two of the sermon today, which is about money, but part one, still on part one, about, about manhood, is that Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, and in verse 12, he says, uh, chapter 16, verse 12, He says, now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not all at his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. And then he goes on to these exhortations. He goes on to these instructions. And men, this is when I want you, at this point, to open your eyes, pay attention to what Paul is saying here to the church at Corinth. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. That's what Paul tells the church at Corinth. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. And then he says, let all that you do be done in love. So in that verse thirteen, there's a commentator that I like to read. His name's uh, William Barnes. I like two different guys that I really like to read. One is very much more uh, into the the literal Greek. This is what's going on, and one is more of kind of a storyteller when it comes to the old Greek world and how it was in Asia and and in Greece. And Barnes says this about that passage when he says when he says here when Paul says. Be watchful. In the King James, it's watch ye. And he says this, The word here used means to keep awake, to be vigilant. And this may perhaps be a military metaphor derived from the duty of those who are stationed as sentinels to guard a camp or to observe the motions of an enemy. The term is frequently used in the New Testament and the duty frequently enjoined. The sense here is that they were to watch, be vigilant against all the evils of which he had admonished them, the evils of dissension, of erroneous doctrines, of disorder, of false teachers, etc. They, uh, they were to watch lest their souls be ruined and their salvation endangered, lest the enemies of the truth and of holiness should steal silently upon them and surprise them. They were to watch with the same vigilance that is required of a sentinel who guards a camp, lest an enemy should come suddenly upon them and surprised the camp when the army was locked in sleep. Be watchful. He's writing to men here, and he's telling them to be watchful, to be like a, a sentinel, to be a guard in a camp, to watch out for teaching. Now, when I say what's physical, we can go to what's spiritual. This applies to us as fathers, as men, spiritually leading in the church. To say, we've got to be on our guard and watch out for men that are teaching doctrine that is uh, not true. And then the next passage, or the next verse, he says, Stand firm in the faith, of which the author says this, Be firm in holding and defending the truths of the gospel. Do not yield to any foe, but maintain the truth and adhere to your confidence in God and to the doctrines of the gospel with unwavering constancy. Be firm in maintaining what you believe to be true and in holding on to your personal confidence in God, notwithstanding all the arts, insinuations, and teaching of seducers and the friends of false doctrine. So in one breath, he's saying, be watchful. Be like an army guard watching over your camp, watching over your family spiritually. And then he says that we are to stand firm in the faith and the truth of the teaching and do not bow and beckon to someone that comes and teaches something That is against the word of God. But then he says, the next passage, he says, act like men. Or quit ye like men is the original Greek. Quit ye like men. And this passage here means to render one manly or brave, to show oneself a man. That is not to be a coward or timid or alarmed at enemies, but to be bold and brave. We have a similar phrase in common use, be a man or show yourself a man. That is, do not be mean and do not be cowardly. I'm just let, I don't even, I'm telling you, I, I watch these, these war movies and I see these guys that go in and put a bullet in Osama bin Laden's head and I see these guys that go in and act of valor and they rescue someone that was there to help. And they go in and they rescue and they kill the bad guys and they take her and they take her out of the swamp and they bring her to safety. And I see the, the brave nature of these men. And I'm just completely inspired by them. And when I read stories like David and Goliath, or I, I read stories of ben, Benaniah, who is in the, uh, in the pit with a lion on a snowy day. You've read that book, I think. If you haven't, I recommend it. In the pit with a lion on a snowy day. And he goes and he kills a lion with his bare hands. And you look at David's mighty men and you see the stories of David's mighty men in 2 Samuel. And you see these men that you go, I want to be at the level of, of courage that they have. And I'm telling you, this war that we're fighting, it's not a war with a lion, and it's not Goliath. This war we're fighting is a spiritual battle for the souls of your sons and your daughters. If you don't think that's true, you are fooling yourself. If you don't think that's true, your head is buried in the sand right now. And you're like, oh, it'll be okay. We are warned throughout Scripture, men, to protect our families. And if you don't like it, if you're hurting inside and there's pain inside that's not allowing you to become the man that God has called you to become, you need to figure out how to get it fixed. Because there is an eternity waiting right now. There's an eternity waiting for you and your children and who they marry and your grandchildren. So he's saying, act like men. Be men. Stand firm. Be bold. Do everything in love. I'm not talking walking around with a club and a beer in one hand saying, hey, go make me dinner. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is be the first one to forgive. Be the first one to get on your knees and pray to God. Be the first one to say, please accept my repentance. Be the first one to be patient. Be the first one to go to the word. Be the first one to stand up and say, no, no, no. We're not going to do that here. You're not going to disrespect your mother like that. No, we are going to go to church today. We are going to get spiritually fed today. We are going to get in the Word today. We are going to pray today. Be a man in that regard. But our culture is saying, that's toxic masculinity. And I took a test yesterday on the internet, and I failed. Apparently, I am a toxic masculinity person. Or masculine, I'm toxic. I took the test. I answered the 35 questions and it said, you need to get some counseling. You have toxic masculinity. Mike, well, now I'm angry that you say that and that's one of the things about being toxic masculine is anger. Apparently because I believe that um, I am the head of our household, that is like one of the main things for toxic masculinity. So we are called to be aliens and strangers in this world. If you want to look like the world, if you want to be a friendship with the world, you are at enmity with the creator of the universe. It says it is hatred toward God. And I think many people, many Christians, want to just in, in, be infiltrated by the world and say, no, we, 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 we want to get along. We want to just get along to get along. And that's not what I see in Scripture. He says, act like men. Play the man. Become like the godly man that is full of strength, conviction, courage, and the grit that you admire. Be strong and courageous. I'm telling you, men, if you don't make an adjustment 40 years, You're going to regret it. You're going to regret it. Where on the other side, you can turn around and look back and go, you know what? I took the encouragement of the scriptures, and I took it serious. And I raised my family, and I led my wife. And I partnered with her, and I joined with her, and she encouraged me, and I built her up, and I became a manly man that my kids can look back on and my grandkids can look back on and said, that's what we want to be like right there. But this gender-blender culture thing, stuff that's going on right now, it's from the depths of hell. It is from the depths of hell. If that offends you, I recommend studying the scriptures out and seeing what kind of man Jesus was. Look at the examples of the Old Testament that he gives us in Hebrews 11, the people that he called the Hall of Fame of Faith, the men of faith, and see if you still think that that's a little bit too harsh, because I don't think it is. That's the first sermon. You can take a deep breath now. I'll take a deep breath now. That's all I have for sermon one. Act like men. Happy Father's Day. Now we're going to recap last week. Do we need to sing another song? Brian, you want to sing Happy Birthday again to kind of reset the mood? We're going to get into Sermon 2, okay? First sermon about being a manly man. Second sermon, we're going to talk about what we've been talking about, which is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And last week, we talked about the tithe. And the tithe are made up of, the tithe was for three reasons. The three Ps, the priests, the party, and the poor. That's what the three Ps were for in the Old Testament. That's what the tithe was for. We looked at that in Deuteronomy, and Numbers, and Leviticus, and we looked about it in Malachi, where he says, bring to me the whole tithe, and so that I have meat in my house and, and my challenge was to you to look up and to study and to see in the Old Testament, the tithe was always food. The tithe was always grain. It was oil. It was wine. It was, it was something that they could have this big party every year at the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Feast of Weeks and the Passover and the Feast of the Fruits. And they could have this, this big party every year, to recognize that God gave them everything. That was the purpose of the tithe. The other purpose of the tithe was to feed the priests because they didn't have an inheritance in the land. The Levitical priesthood did not have an inheritance in the land. God was their inheritance, and therefore God gave them a tenth of everything that passed under the shepherd's rod and everything that came in. And then the third tithe was every three years they were to give an additional tenth. And that was so that they could put it in the storehouse and it was for the poor and the sojourners and it was also for the priests. It was people that they would come in and they would need food and they would go to the storehouse and they'd say, here you go, here is some food because it was an agrarian society and it wasn't based on money, it was an agricultural society and so they could give them food to sustain their lives. That was the purpose, those were the purposes of the tithe in the Old Testament. Part of what I feel like of being a man of God is to look at a subject in the Bible and say, look, I'm going to lead my family down the path of righteousness. I'm going to lead my family down the path of truth. If there's something that we have believed for a long time that is not true, I'm going to look in the Scriptures, do a deep study, swallow my pride, humble myself before the Lord, and say, this is what the teaching is in the Bible about this subject. And when I can do that, then I can be the leader of my family. If I say, no, I don't want to listen to what the Word says... I'm going to have a hard time being the spiritual David that God calls us to be. So in the terms of the the tithes and the offerings, my challenge to people has been been in this subject, where in the Bible does it talk about, in the New Testament does it talk about the tithe? Are we as Christians commanded to tithe? Are we as Christians every week to come in here, go to that cool little Burl Juniper thing in the back that Dennis made, put in our 10% of our net or gross, depending if you work, uh, you know, for cash or if you work for a paycheck, whatever it is, I'm going to put a tenth of that into there, into the church because this is the storehouse and that is now the food and the grain and the wine and the offerings, that is what that is and so that's the question that I pose to you. Is that what we're supposed to do? And so we're going to look at every time tithe is used in the New Testament. Every time. Every time. We're going to look at it. We're going to be here a while. Okay? So turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. Now, I'm not going to, when I say every time, there's going to be a scripture or two we don't look at because it is just the parallel scripture found in Luke. That's also in Matthew. But in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking to the crowds and he's talking to his disciples and he's basically saying, Woe to the scribes and woe to the Pharisees. Woe to the religious leaders of the day. They want you to call them special names. They want the special places of sit at the, to sit at the banquets. They're building themselves up to be looked at as somebody special. And Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Okay, that's not a compliment. He's calling them actors. You guys are just, you're just play actors is all you are. Woe to you, hypocrites, for you tithe. What is tithing in? Tenth. You give a tenth of your mint and your dill and your cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel." So, those three things, the mint, the dill, and the cumin, were very, very small grains. And so, if you can picture a pharmacist who's counting the tablets at the pharmacy table at that little deal that they have, and they're separating five into a deal, right? Well, this is what Jesus is saying. You are so focused on these little tiny grains of things, these little herbs. I'm going to take a tenth of my mint. I'm going to take a tenth of my dill. I'm going to take a tenth of my cumin. Okay, I've got my tithes set aside for God. I've done it because I'm supposed to. I'm doing it right. But he says, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law. You strain out a gnat out of the wineskins, which is an unclean pest. You strain it out so you don't drink it, but then you eat a camel, which is also an unclean animal. So he's being kind of comical here, saying you're so focused on the little tiny matters of the law but you're not focused on the most important matters of the law. Is that making sense? So he's saying, woe to you because you're doing this. Does at this point he say, stop tithing? No. No, he doesn't say stop tithing. He says, again, you should have, what is that? These you ought to have done, talking about the tithing of the mint, dill, and cumin, without neglecting the others, which is justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So Jesus, before he ascends into heaven, before he goes to the cross, before he's crucified, before he's buried and raised to life, before he ascends into heaven 40 days later, he is under the old covenant, and he's telling these religious leaders of the day, you should have followed the Old Testament tithing practice, which is required by law, to do this, you should have done this but also you should have done the mercy and the justice and the faithfulness. And so then Jesus, he goes to the cross on our behalf, he gets buried in the tomb, he resurrects from the dead, he goes down into Sheol, he goes into the, the, the underworld and then he comes back and he spends 40 days talking to his disciples and teaching them everything that he wants them to do. And then he ascends into heaven. Okay, now we're at Acts chapter 2. He ascends into heaven. And then we're going to go to the second time tithing is discussed in the New Testament. Keep in mind, if we are going to be under Old Testament law, we can't pick and choose which ones we're going to be under. You can't pick and choose we're going to be under the Old Testament tithe, but we're not going to be under the Old Testament shaving the edges of our beard or wearing tassels or phylacteries or wool and linen together or doing a field with both uh, two types of grains or whatever. The, all of the Old Testament laws, if you're going to follow one, you better follow them all. And so the tithe was part of the Old Covenant. It was part of the Old Testament law. God required it. So in Matthew 23, he talks about it. And then if you go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 5 through 9, Actually, I'm going to start in verse one. For this uh, Hebrew seven one. For this Melchizedek, he was mentioned in Genesis. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the God of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything, a tithe of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness and king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, and those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So he's saying the tribe of Levi was to get a tithe of everything from the nation of Israel because they did not get inheritance of the land. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob is Israel, Israel has 12 sons, one of the sons is Levi, Levi became the priesthood for the nation of Israel. So Abraham was before Levi. This was before the law started. Abraham, who he is mentioning, that gave a tenth to Melchizedek, is before the law even started. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Meaning, when Joseph died, Joseph, I'm sorry, when Jacob died, he gave a blessing to all twelve sons in the end of Genesis. He gave each son a blessing. So the greater, Jacob, blessed the inferior. The superior blessed the inferior. And he says it is without dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, 10% is received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. Now he's making this argument saying Abraham was first. Levi was way down the line. Melchizedek got tithes. Melchizedek, who was not part of the priesthood of Jacob of the Israelites. Melchizedek was getting a tithe from Abraham, so it could be said that the Levites, who the Pharisees are saying, "You've got a tithe, you've got a tithe, you've got a tithe." the Levites could go all the way back to Abraham and give money to Melchizedek. Did I lose you right there? I might have lost you, and I'm, I'm sorry if I lost you there, but you have, you have Abraham, Melchizedek, and you have the priesthood of the Levites. What he is, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the author, or the uh, the Levites are the inferior to Melchizedek because Abraham was giving tithes and honoring Melchizedek. So he's getting rid of this Law is what he's doing. He's saying the most important person in this story is Melchizedek, the high priest, which was before the law. Is that making sense? He's getting rid of this. He's talking about Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant, not the old covenant, which is, in this example, the tithe. Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant, which is superior to the old covenant, And the reason this is important is because when Christian churches say, you need to tithe, they're using an old covenant concept, but putting a new covenant spin on it. We don't give food and grain and wine anymore. We give your money. And the storehouse is now the church building, the body. Let me ask you this. What if we met in the forest? Is it to provide for the gas and the lights? What if you have a volunteer preacher? Raise your hand if you're a volunteer preacher here. Go ahead, Steve, a little higher. just a little bit higher. Brian, you're in the second. Go ahead. Okay, Donaldo, go ahead. Jared, go ahead. How much did you guys make last time you preached? Volunteer. Volunteer. What if we don't have a need for the resources? That sounds a little more New Testament, what I just described, than it does than we see in other places. Okay, this building was gifted to us by another group. Okay, Someone within our group handled the paperwork to make sure we were legal. We have bills, we have lights, we have gas, we have cleaning supplies. That's about it. So what does the New Testament say about giving or tithing? I just went over what it said about tithing. But now I will show you, we will look at together what the Bible says in the New Testament about giving, about tithing, about offering. But first, before we do that, we have to recognize something. Every one of you have to acknowledge something before you would even be able to understand New Testament giving. And that is this. Everything we own belongs to God. And that includes your life. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, you were purchased. You are not your own, you were bought at a price. So recognize that about yourself. You don't belong to you if you are a Christian. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are not yours. You belong to God, okay? If you recognize that, that you belong to God, the second thing we need to recognize is Psalm, Deuteronomy, Psalm, 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 Psalm. Haggai says this, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. Haggai 2.8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The cattle on a thousand hills, everything that exists, this wood, this carpet, it belongs to God if you are a Christian, including you belong to God if you are a follower of Christ. Because you're not yours, you're bought at a price. That's what the New Testament says, that's what the Old Testament says, that's what we need to recognize before we can even understand what it means to give in the New Testament. So once we acknowledge that everything we have, including our own life, belongs to God, now, what we're looking back is simply giving back to God something that belongs to Him. Giving back to God something that belongs to Him. Giving back my life because it belongs to Him. Giving back my resources because it belongs to Him. Now, the New Testament, because... It talks about money so much. It's got to have examples or stories that we can look at and go, oh, that's how we should do it. That's what the New Testament talks about. And we're going to start in Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter 2, at the very beginning, the doings of the early church, starting in verse 30, we'll start in verse 36. It paints a picture if you start in thirty-six. Let all the house of Israel be assured, or know for certain, that God has made Jesus, whom you uh, crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were about that day 3,000 souls added. Next verse. And they devoted themselves. Who's they? The 3,000 plus the disciples, the earlier apostles. The 3,000 that were added to the number that day. And they... These people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's the first example we see of really New Testament new church, beginning of the early church. If there was a need, people would sell their possessions, they would sell their goods, and they would distribute it according to the needs that there were. If somebody came in and needed food, people would sell something and they'd say, here you go, here's food. Okay? That's the first example. The next one that we have is kind of a what to do in Acts chapter 2, and then we're going to have a what not to do in Acts chapter 5. So this is what they did in Acts 2. They said, oh, Ryan and Rachel have a need. We're going to sell a piece of property so that they can feed their kids. Oh, Nate and Brenda have a need. Now they're going to sell something because life's been good and and things are well. They're going to help us out. That's the way the early church operated. But there's also a way that it should not have operated, and people paid dearly for it. In Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. In verse 1 of 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's full knowledge, or with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. So, later on, his wife comes in. After about three hours, his wife comes in and says, is this the whole money you got for the field? And she says, yep. He says, well... You're going to have the same thing happen to you that happened to your husband. Look, the feet have just carried your husband out, and she dies. Why did they die? Because they lied to the Holy Spirit. What was their intent? It seems to me that they made have s- sat down at the living room table, or the dining room table, and said, you know what? We've got this filled. Let's sell it. And we got 1000 bucks for it. You know how many people are going to think we're awesome? <laughs> I mean, we're 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 special. We've got all this money. Let's go give it. Let's go give it to the apostles and let's make everybody think that we gave everything, but let's keep let's like keep 500 bucks for us. And she's like, "That's a great idea, honey. Let's do that. They're going to, you know, you're going to be sitting at the city gates and they're going to look at me as this great wonderful woman." And so, one, they were in love with money, and two, they were seeking glory. For themselves. Because Peter says, wasn't the field yours to begin with? Didn't God entrust you with this? The Lord is everything, but didn't God entrust you with this field? When you sold it, wasn't the money to be used at your disposal? Why would you come in here and, and make it sound like you did something that you didn't do? Just say, quietly, don't let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Here's some money. Distribute it as there is need. And there would have been a totally different outcome. The outcome would have been God got glory versus the people seeking their own glory. That's kind of like someone walking down there and saying, Hey, uh, Nate, Nate, uh, we just sold a building, and we want to give you guys, uh, my wife and I want to give you $50,000 to, uh, to do this. And, you know, it'd be kind of nice if you made it like the Smith Mission building. Let's put our name on it. I don't think God looks at that very favorably. I think God's like, you're just giving me back what I loaned you and I made you a steward over. And that's a what not to do in Acts chapter 5. And then in Acts chapter 6, we see what they were doing in the early church. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, verse 1, A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There was a daily distribution of food that was given to the widows because they did not have the resources that they needed. There was persecution coming because they're Christians, and people would sell things, they would give it to the apostles, and they would have an opportunity to share God's provision with people that were in need. And there was a debate about some were getting treated a little bit more special than others, and the disciples summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, therefore brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, and so they were distributing food, as had need in the early church so, as a side note you know, I was talking about how churches today will use Old Testament concepts, I just googled uh, what did I google, I googled Bible verses about tithe in the New Testament. That's what I Googled. Bible verses about tithe in the New Testament. And then you know how it says 30, you know, you click on it, it says 35 verses about tithing in the New Testament. I'm like, 35? Man, I need to reread this. I didn't find 35. So I clicked on it, and it was like, all the verses. And there was a few verses about giving. Some are always a little bit out of context, but that's okay. You kind of sift through them. But Malachi 3.10 was one of the verses about tithing in the New Testament. And I've just gone over this Bible again, kind of sifting through the 512, 5512 in the Old Testament New Testament. And Malachi is a minor prophet in the Old Testament. So why is it listed as a New Testament giving concept? Help me understand, people. Why is an Old Testament passage being pushed as a New Testament concept? It doesn't make sense to me. And it probably never will. I've studied this out long enough to understand I don't think the tithe transfers over. In fact, I know the tithe does not transfer over to the New Testament. But I tell you what does. Giving. Giving transfers over. And we look at how to give in 2 Corinthians. Again, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. It's the second letter that he writes to them. And this is very good instruction for each and every one of you and myself and my wife, our family. This is how I believe we are called to give in the church today. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 says very clearly, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly And whoever sows bountifully or generously will also reap bountifully or generously. Here's the kicker. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Notice there's no percentage put on this. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all, uh, we'll, we'll look at this one a little bit later. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. If you go back to 1 Corinthians, a couple pages, we were in 1 Corinthians 16, 13 about being a man, but in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, it says, I'll let you get there. Now, we'll read in verse 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Some versions, if you're in the Navy, will say in keeping with his income. Okay? On the first day of every week, each of you should put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So Paul is instructing the church at Corinth, just like he told the church at Galatia to do, when you guys gather every week, put some money aside, saving it up, saving that money up, so that when a need arises, and I've got to send that money over to another church in Jerusalem, there is this idea of a very ecumenical body, it, was, it wasn't like the congregation that meets at 17th and Elm. It was the church, the universal church, the body of Christ as a whole. And if our church in Fruta or Africa or Moab, it doesn't matter where the church is at. If a church is in need, we have the ability at that point, we have saved it up, we can say, hey, we can fill your need. You guys need food? You need clothes? You need shelter? We can fill that need. Oh, you needed a car? A car? No, you don't need that. So what you need is food, clothing, and shelter. That is what this passage is referring to, I believe, is storing it up so that you have the opportunity to send it out when you need it. Now, it seems pretty clear to me on this that when we decide to give, when we choose to give, we need to give with our heart and we need to not give reluctantly like, ah, it's another Excel bill, I hate paying these, or another IRS tax bill, I really don't want to pay this. It needs to be done with joy and cheerfully. And not under compulsion like a gambler would say, I've got to give, I've got to give, I've got to give, or else. It's one of those things when you pray, God, give me opportunity to give back. Give me opportunity to share your resources. And this is what I found interesting, and then we'll, we'll finish. The very fact that we have the ability to contribute to the needs of others is because God gave us the ability to contribute to the needs of others. I want you to think about this for a second. The very fact that you're able to give is because God gave you the ability to give. And the scriptures actually teach this. The scriptures say this in 2 Corinthians 9. We were just there, but in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 10 and 11, and then we're going to look at one other place where it says it, First, uh, second Corinthians sorry, second Corinthians nine, did I say first, Rachel? Second Corinthians 9: 10 and 11. It says, "He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Who is the one that supplies seed to the sower and bread for food? God. He, God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. I don't believe that God is this, uh, if you give me one, I'll give you two. But when our heart is right, God is looking for people that have the right heart so that he can empower them to share with other people needs, to fulfill their needs. And then he says, you, verse 11, will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce what? Thanksgiving to God. That's where Ananias and Sapphira went wrong. They were trying to give themselves glory. And what Paul is telling the church at Corinth is God will enrich you in every way so that when you give, it will produce Thanksgiving to the Father. It will produce thanksgiving to God Almighty. And that's what we have to remember when we're giving what God has bestowed upon us to other people to help, to serve, to enrich, to, to, to provide. It's giving thanksgiving to God. And there's a passage in Romans chapter 12 when he talks about the grace given us. In Romans 12, verse 6, and then we'll finish up. Romans 12, 6 says... Having different, uh, I'm sorry, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us. Grace is unmerited favor. So God gave us gifts, unmerited favor, to let us use them. If your gift is prophecy, use it in proportion to your faith. If it is service, serve. If it is teaching, then teach. All of these things are gifts, unmerited favor, grace given by God. If it is one uh, serving, one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity. One of the gifts of the Spirit, one of the gifts of God, is the ability to contribute to the needs of others. That's one of the gifts of God, is the ability to say, you have a need, let me fill it. I met with a guy one time, he... This was 10 years ago. He got the, the uh, what would it be called? He got the permit in Florida when they shipped in those little runners on the bottom of Toyota. What do you call those? those the things you step on, Kyle? Running board? He got the permit, the shipping container permit, that every running board that came back came from Japan... He got the permit. That everyone that crossed the dock, he got a, a per, he got a per small percentage of it. Somehow, he said, Nate, I've made more money than I can even ever spend. He says every time one of these running boards comes in, I get money. It just adds up. I get a check from this port in Florida. He lives in Florida. He was thinking about moving here, but we went out to lunch, and I was fairly new in building, and I, you know, it was money was a little tight, and that's when I said, hey let me buy you lunch you know we went out we talked about stuff he says Nate, money is money is nothing to me god has given me so much i wouldn't even know where to spend it all so just let me let me do this and it was, it was something simple like lunch it didn't it wasn't a big deal but it was the heart of the matter the heart of the matter was this isn't mine god gave me an opportunity to have more money than i could ever deal with and i just want to I just want to hand it out to people. I just want to help people. I just want to do this nice thing for people. I see a need, I'm going to fill it. And that's really the heart of the matter when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, when it comes to giving. It says, do not let your acts of righteousness, your giving, your almsgiving, your offering, do not let that be seen by others so that you can get the glory. The glory belongs to God. Everything we have belongs to God. If there's a need in this church, we ought to be tight enough as a family in the body of Christ that we know what that need is and we fill that need. We know that this person is struggling with this or this person is struggling with that. We ought to know that. It doesn't mean we're going to talk. and we're, Hey, we're going to have a church meeting and uh, Nate and Brenda are going bankrupt and so we need to raise up some. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. It's relationships are tight enough where we go, they're struggling financially. They're struggling, with, they're struggling to put food on the table. Let's take up a collection. It can be an anonymous collection. That's the way the early church... I believe, worked. It did not work. did not work on a checks and balances. It did not work on a percentage. Maybe God's wanting you to give 90% of your income and not 10. You ever think of that? What if he's calling you to 90% but you're like, well, I'm just going to stick with the 10. When you give, not if, Make sure your heart's right. That's all I can say. Because if you don't, if your heart's not right, I think you've just kind of wasted some money. It's not an act of righteousness at that point. So, all right. Well, that's all I have for today. Uh, Next week, I believe we will be talking about the Lord's Prayer. All right. Okay. Okay. Oh, (laughs) Uh, love you guys. Uh, Who has communion this morning? Dad, all right.